and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 98, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. On the big 980. You know, it's actually quite appropriate because I've been uh, messing around with Windows 98 this week. Oh, cool. Yeah, what you've been doing. That's, that's a bit old school if you just installed it on your new machine. <laughs> now, I've actually got an old Pentium 4 lying around and I thought, you know, for some reason, you know, Windows 98 was the first version of Windows I, I had at home. Wasn't really all that nostalgic for it recently, but I was watching. Do you, do you ever watch a YouTuber called a Drugger One? Yeah, yeah, I've seen a few. You recommended him, actually. Yeah, like, yeah his yeah. videos are like everything that could possibly go wrong with hardware goes wrong for him. <laughs> and he's doing like a Windows 98 in, in-store video recently, and I thought, you know, I remember stuff like Encarta and Netscape well, Composer you, you and all You need to make sure you've got second edition as well, because that, that was always the improved 98 from what I remember. I've got second edition with Plus Pack. Ooh, yeah, oh, wow. All yeah. the stuff. I remember the Plus Pack. <laughs> yeah. I've been playing around with Encarta. I've been back at school. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, we were talking the other day about mobile phones and how they were kind of taking up your life, and you installed an app on one, and then, then I can tell you about my 3210 experience that I had. Now, this was just um, because, you know, if if you didn't hear that episode of the podcast, we appreciate not everyone listens to every show. That's fine. We don't get offended. Uh, But I was away for a few weeks. Kind of did without my phone, had a bit of a digital detox and actually realised that I coped quite well with it, you know. And you were talking about this, the fact that you you, you downloaded this app that shows you exactly how long you spend using your phone. Yeah, it's a moment, yeah. So that scared you a bit when you saw your result, didn't it? (laughs) Yeah. What was your result? Do you remember? I think it's like five hours or six hours of solid use a day. Five or six hours a day. So your idea was to get rid of your uh, your smartphone and start living in the now. Well, I'm looking here. So this has been tracking me now for uh, about two weeks. It's not actually as bad as I would have thought. Um, I think my highest on here was about four and a half hours. Oh, you're better than me, Dan. God, look at some of them about two hours a day. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. So you're pretty restrained, actually. Forty-two minutes today, my phone. Oh wow, not too bad. So. That's kind of made me feel a bit more at ease. But you tried to get rid of your iPhone and you went old school and tried using a Nokia 3310. <laughs> but how long did this last in this experiment? Yeah, it lasted about two days. And yeah. the thing about it was, I kind of, I thought, oh, you're going to live in the moment. Everything's going to be great. But actually, everyone else has got a phone. So you're sitting there in a restaurant and everyone's looking at their phone and then kind of looking up and talking to each other, then going back to their phone. And it's like... You're just an outcast, a social pariah, just sitting there with no kind of way of getting into the wider world. I was on the coach. There was no um, MP3 player. I was stuck playing Snake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I had something interesting happened in the city. I wanted to take a photo of it. I had no way of taking a photo. Yeah, so I, I decided I can't fight this. I've, mm. I've kind of got to join the guys and just have a bit more restraint. If you can't beat them, join them, yeah. as you're saying. So it is true, and in a way, this is a bit tragic, but you know, it's looking at my usage on my iPhone wasn't quite as bad as I thought it was going to be, to be fair. Still four and a half hours in one day. It's, yeah. it's still quite a lot on, yeah. to use a device, but I, I couldn't live without my iPhone. Like, but, you know, it was nice to have a holiday from it, but I do rely on it for a lot of things. Totally, totally. And yeah, I now see them for the usefulness and kind of realise there's not a utopian world where everyone's <laughs> not using phones and chatting and communicating. There's a, Everyone's engrossed and that's it, yeah. It was an interesting experiment to do, though, I think. Oh, yeah. So, no, no, it's good. Yeah, if anyone else has done that, maybe you've gone off-grid. <laughs> or maybe, because my, my dad actually, he got an iPhone about maybe three years ago, but he still used, you know, the smaller Nokia, the, was it the AT250 yeah. or something? He used that until about 2013, 14. Well, my um, housemate was telling 
telling me his brother's actually got a phone and every time he rings up, his brother goes, I'm running out of power, I'm running out of power, quick, and it just cuts. So maybe that's the solution, just have one that doesn't work. Essentially have it plugged in like a landline then. (laughs) So yeah, worth trying though, Ravi, you know, I applaud you for trying. Oh, thank you. Brave experiment. Two days, (laughs) two days, that was it. Now, obviously, uh, this show is getting towards its second birthday very soon. You know, episode 100 coming up in a couple of weeks. And we're already planning our big Christmas quiz. Now, we're going to be doing this again at Christmas time. If you didn't hear last year's, so much fun. Essentially, I'm the quiz master. We get you and Joe in. Paul Drury from Retro Gamer magazine. Oliver Wilmot from the NVA comes yeah. in as well. And you have to uh, take back the crown this year. Things. You, you got thrashed last year. No, it wasn't that bad, but yeah, yeah, we, we, we had a game and then we lost it. So um, this time we will try and uh, maybe slip down a couple of quid to get the questions in our favour. Yeah, just top this coffee up with something a little bit stronger. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, after that, we're already making plans for what's going to be happening in 2018, which just sounds nuts how quickly this year has gone by. It does, but we've got fantastic events coming up like Play Blackpool, which is a really traditional kind of old school arcade style event and in a seaside town what more can you get now obviously play expo is the biggest retro gaming event in the uk um you know we, we go to it twice a year with the official podcast of play you may yeah. have realized from the uh, you know the talk the re- stage that we've done two years yeah in the, the retro hour stage that's it yeah. and we're going to be bringing that back for the third time uh, this is going to be at play expo in blackpool now like you mentioned normally it's in the summer uh, this year though um we're moving it a little bit earlier it's going to be on in february uh the 10th and the 11th there's a few reasons for that now first of all um if you want to stay at the hotel, they're doing some really good prices. Obviously, it's out of season in Blackpool. Yeah, that's it. You know, out of season, everything's going to be cheaper. And I think, I mean, yeah, I've been talking to a lot of people. Obviously, Andy, who is behind um, the Play Expos, he, he's from Blackpool. And he's like, yeah, no, yeah. there's loads to do. So some people have been saying, oh, it's out of season, everything will be shut. And he's like, it is just a normal town still, you know. All the bars and restaurants and all that are still going to be open. Well, we were thinking of doing a little thing in the evening, weren't we, as well? Maybe a video game quiz or a, a retro hour piss-up or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Whenever we're in town, there's a piss-up. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, we are very pleased to announce that we are going to be involved in play again. And it's going to be happening on the weekend of February the 10th and the 11th. Uh, back in Blackpool again. I mean, Manchester is an amazing event, you know. It's a, a massive venue. You walk in there, it's like an aircraft hangar. Everything's glamorous and everything. It, it's a great event. Blackpool, though, is just loads of fun, isn't it? Oh, Blackpool, yeah. That's the best way to describe it. Loads of fun. If you want to go back in time, go yeah. to Blackpool. That is the 90s. <laughs> Drinks it's, prices are still yeah. in the 90s. It's amazing. It's fantastic. And uh, we're going to be doing the Retro Hour stage again, hosting the talks on the weekend. And we can announce our first panel is going to be, uh, well, you know, some previous guests who've been on the Retro Hour podcast because we love YouTubers. Oh, totally. Doesn't everybody? Like, you know, I just come home every day, look at my subscriptions and just go, oh, new video from this guy, new LGR, new... Oh, it's amazing. Because, you know, we we do a podcast. We both started on YouTube. You know, we've been doing YouTube for longer. And it's kind of where... I'd say, you know, back in the day, magazines were what held the gaming scene together. For retro gaming now, I think YouTube is really where it's at as well as podcasting. Especially the, the, the British YouTubers. They seem to have their own little crew and kind of, they don't get that much light and they're not kind of talked about as much as other people. Yeah, not like your AVGNs and yeah. all that kind of thing. But we're going to be bringing some of our favourite YouTubers. We've handpicked a few of our favourite guests that we've had on the show and that YouTubers that we know everyone who's involved in the uh, UK and European retro scene loves. So Guru Larry... Larry Bundy, behind the Fact Hunt series. Hello! <laughs> uh, he's going to be joining us. Uh, Kim Justice, of course, our good friend Kim. Um, had her on the show before. We were hanging out with her at Play Expo, actually, in, Bla- in, uh, in Manchester, weren't we, a few months ago? Yep. Uh, Slopes Game Room. Now, Slopes, I think he's only been doing YouTube for about a year, but he's already just got over 50,000 subs. So he's doing very well. His videos are really interesting, too. And uh, Nostalgia Nerd. 
Ah, yes. I, I, I'm just a fan of every single one of these channels, so it's going to be just exciting for us to have all these people on stage. And I, I just think coming and being able to meet them, probably come out and have a drink with us as yeah. well, it would be great. Well, we're going to be there, you know, stopping over. We've all got hotels, going to be there for the weekend. So if you want to come along, if you watch Guru Larry, Kim Justice, Slopes Game Room, Nostalgia Nerd, there might be more to be announced soon as well. We're working on a few others. But I think, you know, you, you don't really get YouTuber panels at retro shows in the UK. No, you don't. No, I think this is the first. So. Yeah. Let's see how it goes. Oh, it's going to be really interesting, I think. So that's the first thing we've announced, and obviously there's going to be a lot more coming over the next few months. Tickets are available now if you want to get them before uh, Christmas, and they're getting there nice and early, ready for the weekend of the 10th and 11th of February, and we'll put all those in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, speaking of our website, that is where you can find those little buttons that will earn your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Now, the reason we do this is, you know, it's not like a Patreon. It's nothing like that. The reason we have a little tip jar on our website, that's what it is. It's just to keep the show going because I'm thinking about this. We're coming up to our second birthday. January, we're going to get hit with it all, aren't we? SoundCloud audio hosting, subscription renewals, website hosting renewals, all of that is going to come up next month. So, uh, you know, this would be really well appreciated, guys. Very well timed. If you'd like to make a little donation into the running of the show, you know, every little penny we get will make a massive difference to us. Help us keep doing the show throughout 2018 and do more events as well. So all you've got to do is nip onto our website, theretrohour.com. You'll find PayPal, Bitcoin, Ethereum, however you want to donate. And just for making a donation of any amount, you'll get in the Hall of Fame. Just like this week... Kim Jorgensen, Toby Bridson, Elysian Pickups, and Michael Daly, who all made donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. Thank you so much, and you can do the same just by heading onto our website, theretrohour.com. Now, if you are new to the Retro Hour podcast, because, you know, we've checked our stats recently, uh, we've been growing at a huge rate in the last six months. Oh, yeah, we, we, we've doubled, which is just absolutely fantastic. We're going to try and triple next time. <laughs> like the ambition. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we appreciate all our new listeners. And, of course, if you listen to the Retro Hour podcast every week, we get people saying they've listened since, since episode one. So that's amazing. But the way the show works is Ravi and I sit here in our little cosy studio on a weeknight. Cup of tea. A nice little chalky biscuit maybe yeah. on the go as well. And uh, we talk about the retro gaming headlines because there's lots going on this week that we're going to get through in just a moment, some interesting stories. And then in the second half of the show, we welcome on, you could almost say, you know, one of our gaming heroes. Oh, totally. And this week we have a fantastic gaming hero. We have Alex Very, a.k.a. Big Boy Barry. Now, Big Boy Barry is actually the longest-running presenter of a video games TV show on UK television. He was on every single day on Games World. Can you believe that? Daily game show back in the 90s. That was on Sky, wasn't it? It was on Sky, but it was made by the same production company that did Games Master. Mm. So basically, they had Dave Perry in there, they had all the other guys, but... They actually found Alex as he was a contestant on Games Master. A he, cocky contestant. A remember, cocky yeah. contestant that won a golden joystick. So they kind of hired him. And then it got to the point that, you know, in the fourth series, he had a BTV, which was Big Boy Barry TV with him and, uh, oh God, the guy from Little Britain. Oh, David Williams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I remember, he was yeah. In it, yeah. <laughs> and Jet from Gladiators. So. Oh, you remember that one. <laughs> oh, totally. Everybody remembers Jet. <laughs> so this is really interesting because, you know, that era of gaming television was just so exciting, wasn't it? It was. And, you know, Sky was kind of a brand new channel. You only had, like, the four channels and that was it. Mm. So you had this extra choice and they had, had to fill it. And, you know, this kind of fit the slot perfectly. So Big Boy Barry is going to be our special guest this week, and it actually ties in quite well, because Barry actually works with the guys from Play these days, doesn't he? So he's often at these events. Oh, yeah, it'd be really good to do something with Barry at Play. Oh, I'm sure sure we will. I'm sure we will. But he's going to be our special guest. Big Boy Barry is coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. 
Shall we get into some stories then? Yeah, totally. It seems that we mention the Raspberry Pi like every week at the moment. It is, but it's because so many people are bringing out so many cool projects and a lot of them are kind of based around the Switch. You know, this is another design that looks like the Switch and this is called Pip. So this is, um, because we did talk about a guy who'd made his own kind of Nintendo Switch retro project using a Pi last week. This one, though, is actually a commercial product that's um, launched on Kickstarter. Now, like you said, it does look like a Nintendo Switch insofar as it's it's a handheld device. And it's got an LCD screen in there. You can even take the sides off this one, Dad. Yeah, that's what makes it you know, quite like a Switch, actually, that it's got a controller on the side that actually unclips from it, just like the Switch. Uh, battery, cameras built in as well. All these are Raspberry Pi ports like your USB and HDMI. But this exists, really, for kids that want to learn games programming. Totally. So there's this environment. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Scratch. Have mm. you heard of that at yep. all? It's like a Python-based language where you can kind of script and create stuff and that originally came out on the raspberry pi now this is available on the pip but the problem is you know you've got this tiny screen a little d-pad and controllers how the hell are you going to program I, on that i was thinking that when you put that in i'm like is it touch screen and you've got to use like an on-screen keyboard yeah, to code in a big keyboard <laughs> and look at the tiny thing but actually what you do is you try out the code in your browser in a built-in emulator so it emulates the pip within a browser and then one click you can just send it over wi-fi to the pip yeah, so and it, and it will run in the native hardware. Yeah, it deploys it straight to the machine. Yeah, that's really smart. It's for kids, you know, you can totally experiment, mess about in your browser, break it, do whatever, and then once it's done, just send it over. And because it is a Raspberry Pi, it can also run stuff like, you know, Raspbian on there and all, all the standard oh, stuff. Minecraft and all of your kind of games you want. You know? Well, it comes preloaded with Snake, um, oh, which you, you'll be keen on. Pac-Man <laughs> and Minecraft, of course, yeah. is included on it. I think this is really cool, though. I mean, the thing about it is, if you were to give maybe like a seven, eight-year-old kid, which, you know, I started using computers when I was about seven, eight years old, started learning, you know, basic programming and yeah. all that kind of stuff on them then. But this looks a lot more child-friendly than giving a kid like a a Raspberry Pi in the standard box. I'd, or... I'd prefer to give this to my kid than a Switch because you go, Dad, Dad, I want a new game and you go, go make it. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> it. <laughs> go to your room and don't come out until yeah. you've made the next Minecraft. <laughs> but at the moment, this is running on, uh, on Kickstarter and there's still around, you know, about 18 days left when this show comes out on here and they need $39,000. It's already got 35000 and there's oh, still like so over two weeks left. it's definitely happening then. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I think that's really, really cool though. So if you want to find out more and, uh, you know, I'm not sure when this is going to be released and there's actually a release date on it yet, but I'm sure we'll be covering it. And I wouldn't mind getting my hands on one of these actually. It would be quite interesting to do a little video on this, I think. Definitely. So we'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, if we're talking about the early 90s, you know, maybe that period that Games World was on TV, and you remember then when the PS1 came out, and just before that with the 3DO, and there was like a bit of a craze for real people in video games. Oh, yes, I remember all the green screen. Even with the early Amiga CD stuff, they used to have some awful stuff on that. And what, <laughs> there, there, there was lots of PC CD-ROM titles that came out, you know, that were full horror adventures and stuff. Well, you know, I mentioned before that I installed Windows 98 on, on this Pentium 4 that I've got at home. Been messing around with it. I also put, um, I've got a few DOS games on CD-ROM, actually, mm. and I installed uh, The Seventh Guest. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. That was a big one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was one of, maybe, must have been one of the very early. I think it was, the first, it was was it Phantasmagoria or something? That was one of them. But... That was at 93, yeah, Seventh Guest came out, so it was definitely one of the early ones. And again, it was... Um, Real people came in, full motion video, obviously it was called. And that was kind of a craze, probably only for about a year, two years. I know some of the early PlayStation games have still got FMV bits in them. But really it was more the domain of the the Mega CD and the 3DO and that kind of thing. Back then though, I mean, a lot of game studios tried to do full motion video. 
didn't bother spending much money on real actors. Um, often got guys from the office to like play yeah, characters. Yeah, and also the resolution would be a bit a bit sketchy back yeah. then. You know, it it would look like it would be high res, but it wasn't really amazing picture quality. You played Night Trap, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but now, all these years later, the scene is set for the return of full motion video games. Totally, like there's, we've had two listeners contact us and. One has been uh, talking about Erica, mm-hmm. which is this brand new PlayStation 4 game, which uses PlayLink system, which apparently is some kind of multiplayer mobile phone used okay. with the PS4. So maybe you could interact with your phone whilst playing the game or play it on the move. I'm not quite sure how that works, but there's a very small kind of intro on it. As with these FMVs, you know, they've just put a little video out and that's it. But it looks really good. This is a story about a girl and it's... Looks like it's kind of a horror-based uh, one. Yeah, apparently it's a story of a young woman with a dark past that's returned to haunt her. Yeah, there you go. And, <laughs> and another one which was mentioned by Martin Bishop is actually on the PS4, which is called The Late Shift. Right. And this looks really, really cool. I was watching it earlier, and you're working in a garage doing a late shift, and then a girl comes and gets a really expensive car, and he she suddenly gets kidnapped. Guy's got a gun to her head. And you've got to make the choices. Do I give him the keys? Do I do this? Do I run off? And it's it's all you're stuck on this hellish late shift at work. <laughs> you've got to make all these decisions. So that looks fantastic. And I can't wait to hear about any other VR, uh, not VR, any other FMV stuff coming out. Well, the thing is, I mean, before, like you said, the technology wasn't there for these kind of games back in the 90s. And I think because they got such a bad reputation, it's probably scared a lot of developers off doing them for a long time. Totally, yeah. And but, but it's there now, the technology. I mean, you know, you... you, you get these games here that are filmed on like nice high definition 1080p cameras oh mate it gets really scary I've been playing that the bunker one which I've mentioned quite a few times on this show and you're in a nuclear bunker by yourself that is so scary it's unbelievable just seeing the video and the way that on these ones as well you move your mouse to investigate stuff and the guy's head will move along with mm. it you know all the elements of interactivity are really nicely done you know you did mention then accidentally but you said VR and yeah. this twin with virtual reality would be, that's got to be the ultimate reality yeah. experience, isn't yeah. it? Oh, God. But, I mean, there is a lot of people who don't like these kind of games. I mean, I, I quite like, you know, the Telltale games and, like, Beyond Two Souls and Heavy mm. Rain, those kind of games. Yeah. A lot yeah, of people... It's, it's for a particular taste, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. a lot of my mates are, oh, they're just movies, you know, if I want to watch a movie, I'll watch a film. But they are, you know, they're essentially interactive films, aren't they? They are, totally. But also, I think there's a whole generation that hasn't played them. You know, that's a younger generation that's going to come onto this and be like, wow, what is this? Or, you know, much more immersive story, I feel, when I play them. And again, it's like the technology is there and they've got like proper actors in to do them these days. So they look like, you know, Hollywood. Yeah, it's not, it's not the staff anymore, <laughs> is it? <laughs> so the time is, I mean, I'm glad to see FMV back because the, I think now people are going to explore the potential of it a lot more than they, they could back in the old days. So yeah. I welcome it back for one. I know there will be people that disagree. Kind of going the complete opposite to that, though. I've been checking out a thread on Reddit recently. Now, if you ever spend a bit of time on Reddit, you know, slash R, slash Retro Gaming, really good community, a lot of interesting threads on there. Retro Battle Stations, another good one on Reddit as well. People showing out their old machines. Showing all their rigs off. Uh, But this one is a thread that was started um, (laughs) by a guy whose name I won't say. I was about to read it out, but yeah, it's not family friendly, (laughs) as with most of Reddit. This was started about a week ago. And the question he posed to the community on there was, why am I playing more retro games now? And he gives a few points as to why recently he's got massively back into retro games. And a few that he lists, for example. Number one, no microtransactions. Awesome local multiplayer, the couch experience. 
no waiting for updates, which we did mention last week when I, you know, 24 hours to get the new Call of Duty installed and updated. If a game doesn't work, you usually have to blow on your cartridge instead of downloading a patch, pick up and play versus spending whole days and weeks upgrading a character and then dying within 20 seconds because someone spent more money to upgrade theirs. I do kind of agree with that one, actually. Uh, better storylines, hmm. uh, replayability, and obviously nostalgia is the reasons he lists. Yeah, I, I don't know. It depends on the person because actually for me, it's, it's, it's quite the opposite. I'm playing a lot of brand new titles that are retro-themed mm-hmm. and they're providing that local two-player experience yeah. of sitting on the sofa, like Cuphead, yeah. for example, which is just fantastic and insane. And uh, it's like... I actually find it harder to play retro games because I have to get the bloody retro setup <laughs> sorted. You know, I have to blow the dust off the machine, I have to get all the cables out and get it all plugged in. Whereas my modern rig's sitting there and I can easily emulate something. I, yeah, I don't know. I seem to be drawn to the modern titles. How about you, Dan? I think you're on the wrong show. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Maybe because I talk about them too much. That's right. But I mean, well, okay, kind of mentioning, you know, this kind of ties them both together. The system I have been playing most recently is the Switch. Mm. You know, I, I play my Switch way more than anything else. But you've been playing Sonic Mania, right? Which yeah. is retro kind of theme. Dimmer yeah. Weed Park. I've yeah, been playing yeah, as well yeah. recently. But again, I think it's because it fits in my lifestyle now. But again, I mean, like this guy said about retro games, if I have got a retro system set up, the fact that you can just pick up the game and get straight in and play it, you haven't got to dick around with updates and installing and all that. But the Switch can come on the go with me. So if I'm going away for the weekend or I'm on a plane or a train, I, that's when I've got time to sit yeah. down and do stuff. I, I guess it's easier for people that aren't nuts like us because I know you've got 40 machines at home. and Ooh, I've at least double that now. <laughs> yeah, really? Jeez. <laughs> Must be knocking on about 70, I think. Oh, my God. Yeah, you see. And I've got, like, about 10, mm. and they're all in different states of repair. And, you know, that means I'm just overwhelmed with... If I want to play a game, I'm overwhelmed with all of this stuff. Yeah. You know, compared we, to someone that will go, oh, get the Mega Drive out and just, you know, go on it. We have said that before. Sometimes having too much choice, you end up playing nothing. Yeah, yeah, that's it. it. It's like one of these guys that collects classic cars and you go around his house and his garden's full of all these broken cars. I'm going to do it, but yeah. one day they're going to be great, you know. <laughs> oh, I've got a beautiful uh, one at the back, you know. Still about, yeah, still there for 20 years. And they're all still wrecked. <laughs> well, that's I mean, how I feel at the moment. Well, my friend actually, he got a Switch for his family. Wait, you know, it's for him really. He sent yeah, it for yeah. the kids the other day. And he actually sent me a picture of his... Uh, um, his son and his daughter, his, his son's about eight years old, his daughter's five, and they're there playing Mario Kart in front of the TV, sitting on the couch playing with the controllers. Oh. Couch gaming, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's on a cartridge, you put it back in. So the Switch has kind of brought that back. Totally, so, totally. Cool. Like, yeah, I've been sitting on the couch with my mate playing uh, Cuphead and playing all these new two-player retro games. Yeah, it's just fantastic. Now, but obviously there are advantages to retro games. I think, you know, obviously the fact... One thing I quite like about the the old systems and playing the old games is, a lot of them were, which, which happens less and less now, but they defined a genre. You know, you, you play an old game and it was the first game that was ever yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, there's like, like as we just talked about FMV, there's these lost genres like point and click and, you know, all of these ones that were massive and uh, kind of getting the best experience is going back to those old games a lot of the time. You know? Yeah, and seeing where it started. It's yeah, always interesting, yeah. isn't it? And also there are, I mean, when we were kids, we had no money to go out and buy, you know, a lot of these expensive games. I mean, people talk about the price of games today, but I remember when I was like, you know, 12 years old, like a Super Nintendo game would be I about 60 I didn't have enough money to buy pirate games. <laughs> they were expensive for me, 50p a disc, bloody hell. Let alone 60 quid for a Nintendo yeah. cartridge, yeah. But again, I mean, a lot of it for me is it's having these experiences I missed out on. 
Yeah. So, so the yeah. games I used to read about, and I didn't have the money to play them, or I didn't know anyone that had them, but I've heard about them over the years, or systems that I always wanted. That's it, you know, you were always stuck with, like, your crap demo discs and a few a few titles that you had. You never really had all the amazing ones. I remember going around my mate's house once, and he had, like, the whole PlayStation collection. I was just like, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But again, I mean, if you've got something like a flash cart, you can essentially get... I mean, it's free games after that, isn't it? Yeah, Please totally. Don't. So that yeah. is one good thing about it, I mean... And also, I guess... Now that we're getting older, there's a lot more retro stuff to play. Before, there wasn't really that much retro. You'd have your arcade stuff, and then that'd be it. And then your platformers. And your, yeah. Oh, and even there's loads of adventure games I want to go through that you know I've either played for years and forgotten about, or you know, there's such a wealth, a massive back catalogue of games you couldn't get through them all in your lifetime. It's like know. you know. Yeah. So I, I do see the appeal. That there are very valid reasons. Why, you know, so you often get people asking you that, like, oh, what do you want to play old games for? I've got mates that are not into retro and they don't really get it. But I think there are very valid reasons why you would. And a good game, I mean, we've all said this on, on the show, a good game's like a good movie. It's, it's timeless. Yeah, totally, so. totally. It's all about the gameplay. Right then, guys, well, thank you for checking out episode number 98 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next Friday, available from all of your favourite podcast clients, iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, YouTube. Yeah, we're everywhere. And if you could drop us a review on iTunes as well, that would be fantastic, guys. You know, we do get some people saying, oh, why iTunes? It's the worst one. I think iTunes is the biggest podcast chart, so... It is, and it is the home of podcasting, I'm afraid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> watch, actually, uh, you guys should watch the video of Steve Jobs launching podcasting, because he then puts a podcast on, which goes ahead and starts insulting the Apple Mac and saying how <laughs> oh, really? bad it is, and then he <laughs> desperately turns it off. So search for that on YouTube. Was well, that YouTube? Yeah, Steve Jobs launches I've podcasting. Yeah. Right, I'm going to put that in the show notes before this week. <laughs> That'll be worth a watch. Uh, but obviously, you know, we do have an RSS feed on our website. You can download the raw MP3s. We're on pretty much every service yep. as well. So whatever you listen on, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we'll be out again next week with episode number 99, getting close to the big 100. Oh, yeah, special guests. Here we yeah, go. I'm working on it, I'm working on it. But this week, speaking of special guests, this is going to be interesting, Big Boy Barry joins us next on the Retro Hour podcast. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome this week's very special guest. Welcome to the show, Big Boy Barry. Hey! Well, I'm pleased to be here. How are you guys doing this evening? Very good, thank you, Alex. Really appreciate you joining us on the show this week. Now, um, obviously, we're going to get some stories about your uh, days on Games World and gaming telly back in the day. I mean, this is a question we always like to start with because, uh, you know, we can find out a little bit about your history. What was the first ever, like, earliest gaming memory you've got then, or computers? Where did it all start for you? Earliest gaming memory? Oh, geez, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's such an ingrained part of my life, I think. I'm trying to think of the earliest gaming memory. I grew up with gaming, so I had an older, I've got an older brother, uh, four years older than me, so I guess, you know, he was always into gaming before I was, so I was sort of, uh, my earliest gaming memory was watching him play video games, I think, and, and we had one of the old Atari, so we had, we had the old Atari, uh, uh, VCS machines, I guess it was, the older Pong machines. Yeah. Um, and I can't even remember what model it was. That's how young I was. But I do remember one of those permeate, uh, in one of those sort of living in the house and, uh, and playing Pong. But really, I think my first, my first genuine gaming memory was, uh, was the Christmas that, uh, 
that uh, that Santa Claus brought home the 48k Specky. So uh, so I was born in 77, and that's really the first the first real memory I have. I know we had an Atari. It never really worked very well, but it was the Spectrum that, that kind of kick-started gaming for me. And that first year where we got a uh, Hunchback and Horace Go Skiing and uh, and Hungry Horace and Manic Miner. And, uh, and and that was kind of it for me. What an amazing year that was! Did your friends like get spectrums around the same time then? Everybody did. Yeah, you sort of you you started growing up with it, right? And then you had the uh, yeah the film, format wars were so much fun, and nothing has changed. <laughs> <laughs> nothing has changed right the way uh, through to twenty seventeen. Nothing has changed, and you always uh, you know we had the Specky, and then the rich kids always had the C sixty four, right? And then the uh, and then the oddballs who pa- whose parents were absolutely insistent uh, that the computers were there for education bought the BBC. And, uh, and then there were a few strange kids who had the Amstrad as well, who who didn't really sort of fit in either camp. But it was it was usually uh, Specky versus Commodore 64. But yeah, everybody started growing up and playing games at the same time. And, uh, and you'd go around each other's houses and you'd swap games and... Uh, and you'd, uh, you'd 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 swap dodgy games that you recorded on cassette that would never work properly, and uh, and then you'd start the arguments over what's uh, what's better, be it C sixty four or Specky. I always felt in this, uh, I always felt in the Specky camp, um, but like most people who are playing the Spectrum, love my Specky. Sequely wanted a C sixty four at the same time. I think. Well, later on, did you get any uh, consoles as well? I did. You know, I did, and and really, it was the. Uh, you know, it was the NES that that, that kind of did it when the NES started to appear in the in the 80s, and uh, you know, Mario was just a, a thing of beauty. I always wanted a console. Since console started appearing in the high street on, in Dixon's window, you know, I always wanted to start a console. My parents wouldn't let me have them though, because they were under the misguided belief that I think all parents of the 80s were. That you know they bought a computer for educational purposes, and you happen to play games on it as well, which is of course just you know a, a load of nonsense. <laughs> like, nobody, nobody was really using the computers for educational purposes. Actually, you, I mean, you you type in a few a few bits of code from now and again that you find in your Sinclair, but really. We just bought computers so you could play games on them, but our parents thought they were there for education. So they wanted a computer because they thought it would help you with your studies or some other nonsense. Uh, we were only ever playing games on them. But then they saw that, you know, the cartridges were like you know, 40, 50 quid. So I think my, my parents always had an issue there. And when you're growing up and you're, and you're young, you know, your parents are the gatekeepers, right, because uh, they're the ones buying the kit for you. And uh, and they resisted for for a very long time. So I always wanted a NES, and I'd go around to my buddies' houses that would have Master System as well or, or NES, and uh, and I'd live around there playing Punch Out or Super Mario Brothers or Alex Kidd on the uh, on the Master System. I used to love that. Uh, and then it wasn't really until the Mega Drive came along. I guess I was sort of thirteen, fourteen just started getting a little bit of money for myself. That's that that was the first console that I think I purchased. Uh, even though, you know, I've been playing NES and Master System for years beforehand, the first console I purchased was a Mega Drive, and that was done with my own money. And you you start to get kind of a, a tiny bit of financial freedom at that age where yeah. you can uh, you can just about get it past the parents, I think. 
I remember a friend of mine at school actually got an early Mega Drive, and I think it was before they came out here, like one of the Japanese imports. And right. when we saw that, it was like something out of the future. It was they couldn't <laughs> believe the, like an arcade machine in your house. Oh, it's just it's just a different world, right? I mean, it's just a, and and that was the big deal, right? That everyone was importing the machines at, at that time, and they would have, you know, switches or mods or whatever, or come with the power the power supplies, just the power supplies to get to get the machines to work, run off uh, two hundred twenty volts or whatever. They just used to they used to be seriously dangerous. These things, and, um, and and I remember uh, buddies importing them in. It was always the rich kid. They'd always have like one rich kid that would uh, that would bring them in. And the games would be like seventy, eighty pounds a, a throw, right? Even mm. back then, and that's that was serious money. But yeah, it was just nuts when you started seeing like DJ Kid and. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of the early games on Mega Drive, which are Altered Beast, of course, you know, you just couldn't believe it. As you say, it was the, the first real machine to, to truly bring that arcade experience to the home. And it was incredible. You just never looked back from there. You knew you had to have it. You just didn't figure out how you were going to afford it. Well, you and your friend were kind of browsing through teletext and you uh, found something interesting. Could you expand on that? You've done your research. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> look, at, look how professional you guys are. I'm impressed. We've done, we've done this a couple of times. You've done it. It's not your first rodeo, is it? Look at that. Look at that. These guys are the pros. I love it. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. So what year is that? That's, oh, it's got to be early 90s. Teletext. Teletext was a thing, right? Digitizer. Mm. Remember Digitizer? Mr. Biffo. Mr. Biffo. God, the kids today will never have the delights of loading up to digi- It's the only thing to do at my grandma's house, right? And that, again, around that age, when you're sort of 13, 14, you've got to go around to grandma's house and you just got absolute sweet FA to do around there. And I just relied on digitizer. It was the closest thing that we had to sort of surfing your phones and looking at Facebook, which I guess is today's equivalent. But Mr. Biffo was superb. Digitizer got away with a lot of stuff, right? It was seriously weird. <laughs> the worm being sick at the very end. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right? It's just, it was, it was, it was quite subverted and uh, loved it. Loved it. Loved Digitizer. And, uh, and yeah, so this must be going back early 90s and there was a, uh, there was a message on Digitizer that there was a new uh, TV show coming on that was going to be about video games, which, you know, I mean, this is revolutionary back in, back in the day, right? That's never been done before. Uh, a TV show about video games, that's fantastic. And they were, they were giving away audience tickets, um, and they gave you a phone number to phone and, and, uh, and try and get audience tickets. So my buddy and, and I, uh, my buddy Martin Mathers and myself, phoned up the hotline number to get audience tickets for this new TV show that's being made for Channel 4, uh, called Games Master, and uh, and we we got some audience tickets. We got some audience tickets, and then we found out that you know it was being these it was being shot in the middle of nowhere in an old abandoned church in the middle of the city, and it was right when the schools went back in September, so it was being done right in in term time. Um, but we didn't care anyway. We figured we'd, we'd figure out a way to to sort of bunk off school and, and go along and watch this uh, this video game show being filmed filmed. And um, and there you go. And I remember, I think you you had to leave a message to get audience tickets. And then we got a phone we got a phone call back from uh, from one of the researchers to say, can we bring some more people? <laughs> because they got nobody. The show had never been show, uh, shown before on TV, so no one had any idea what the hell Games Master was all about. And they couldn't fill the audience seats because again, it was in term time. Um, so they asked us. 
I don't think you could do this now. They asked us if we could get some more people to bunk off school and, and come watch the show. <laughs> oh, wow. Couldn't get away with it. They did. They said, like, if you want any buddies, because we give you as many seats as you want. And we said, well, you know, we'll ask around. And I think we did. I think we roped a few more people to come in and watch it. Um, but then, you know, they, they, they had their begging tray out. They were looking for, they were looking for contestants for challenges on, on games. Um, and again, this show had never been done before. So, you know, they had a real issue convincing people that this was going to be uh you know a worthwhile endeavor to come down for the day so they had they were desperate for contestants to come on and try and win uh win prizes which would turn out to be the uh the golden joystick and they were desperate for people to come down so they said you know do you know anybody that would like to be on tv and, and that are good at video games and uh and i think both myself and, and my buddy martin said yes us we'll do that and then we we trekked down to 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 the Docklands, which again in those days was sort of abandoned and was tough to get to, and which is where uh, the offices of the production studio was. It was a production studio uh, called uh, Hewland International, mm-hmm. and uh, and we trekked down and we met those guys uh, very briefly, and they said, "Yeah, have all the audience tickets you want, and uh, you guys are a lot of fun, so we're going to pencil you in to come on the show and and compete." And that was that. I went on series one playing Sonic the Hedgehog. I think it was it was either episode one or episode two of Games Master ever made. I was on playing Sonic the Hedgehog, and uh, and that was me. I think thirteen or fourteen years old, um, making my TV debut. Kind of locked in those cages with the little dwarves and everything. <laughs> it was. It really was. And again, it was just. It was. I don't know. It was. It was very bizarre when when, when you think back at it, and uh, like you know, you think I, I was. I was kind of young, but I went down there on on the bus together with me and Martin and a few people to watch. And I just don't know if you, if we'd get away with that today. I don't know if today's parents would have that. It was quite dodgy because it was it was in term time as well. I can't remember what damn excuse we used to bunk off school, um, but it was you know it was a pretty intense day and it was it was the most inhospitable filming um, conditions I think because again it wasn't a set; it was a real church and. You know, there were lights everywhere and it was hot and they, they you know they were right at the start of production and they didn't know how to shoot this damn show and everything took so long and then hilariously um they had hardly anybody there in the audience i mean they had they they were still having a real issue filming it so they had to they, the few people that they had they had to shunt over to sort of one side of of the studio seating and then film it from a certain direction to make it look like that the place was full. And then they'd, they'd stop the cameras and move the few people they had in the audience. <laughs> I, I just saw that guy's twin at the other side of yeah, the room. Exactly. If you watch closely, you'll just see the same folks just dotted around in different positions. That's hilarious. <laughs> like, it's, uh, it's funny. It's funny. Now, of course, you know, the show aired. Rest is history. Huge, huge hit on Channel 4. And then I think by Series 2, you know, they had no problem um, getting, you know, really good contestants in and really good, uh, you know, huge amounts of audience people were clamoring for tickets. They just had no problem at all. But that first year, um, we got in at the right time. There's no doubt about it. And have you still got your golden joystick? As I speak to you, there's no word of a lie. As I speak to you, I am gazing at my golden joystick. 
Now, I understand that sounds a little perverse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, but, uh, but I do actually read the genuine Games Master Golden Joystick. I do. I have my Games Master Golden Joystick. We're, we're very I jealous think. here. I, I love I the fact that, be. I mean, that was the most coveted prize in gaming, even though it was like, what, a Cheetah 125 spray-painted gold, wasn't it? I think, so, yeah, I'm looking at it now. I think it's a, a quick shot. I, think yeah. it's a, I don't know. I, don't, I think, yeah, I think it's a Kempston quick shot, just spray-painted gold. Really badly, by the way. I mean, it's, you know... It, it is pretty bad and the perspex box that it's kind of mounted in is all sort of yellowing up and uh and is is, is looking a bit ghetto but um still got it still got it still in one piece and uh, you know it's interesting isn't it it is interesting because i think i went on it and like you know my parents taped it on the vcr and phone up all the relatives and all your mates and everything and everyone at school is watching and you have that sort of 24 hours where it's really cool and it goes goes out on air uh, but yeah, I think I remember. I think I remember my dad bless him. You know, making a quip like, "Ah, oh, he could have given you a games console or something as a prize. Is, is that all you got? That gold joystick?" Which you know, he meant very nicely as a joke. But I felt a bit dejected when he said that. <laughs> uh, like, this is amazing! It's, it's the golden joystick. <laughs> it's real gold, surely. It's got to be worth a fortune. But uh, but it's funny, isn't it? Because it's really what it what it signified more than anything else, and, and certainly set me off onto a onto a career path. You've got to hand it to, to Jane Hewland. Jane Hewland, by the way, remarkable lady. You should try to get her on the Retro Podcast because she's an incredible person. So she was, uh, she's a visionary, you know, and she got the idea for Games Master because she had a, her young kid called Harry, who was even younger at that time, uh, and was a, a lovely chap, actually, uh, was just playing video games all the time, and she just couldn't figure out why there was nothing on, on air. You know, um, now, of course, it is, it, it's a whole different situation where we have the internet and YouTube and Twitch and hundreds of ways to watch people play games, inform ourselves of games, see trailers for games. Back then, there, there really wasn't anything, right? You had magazines that mm. would show screenshots of games coming up, you know, months later than, uh, than, 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 than you know, they were actually issued to the magazines. So news cycles were always very late. Uh, because of the nature of print advertising, there was no real way to see games move. So Games Master was revolutionary. It was the, it was the first thing to do what it did. And there was nothing but Games Master for the first year. So it had a good, clear year, possibly even two years. You'll have to see that. But there was, there was nothing at the time to rival Games Master. It took a year or so for everybody else to catch up to the idea that this is... Uh, this might be something. <laughs> you know, this is uh, this is getting the kids interested. Uh, you know, and TV execs didn't really understand it back in that day. They don't really understand it now. Well, Hooland International later on approached you uh, because they were creating a new show, and uh, you'd obviously got on well with them. And uh, your cockiness seemed to help that situation as well. Yeah, extreme cockiness. <laughs> it did. It did. It helped my situation. So when I was on Games Master. Um, Oh God! I didn't try to be that cocky. I'm just cocky, but I was just a cocky little uh, little kid by nature, right? But uh, you know, so the, the the initial challenge they set for me for Sonic was to collect like 130 rings or 120 rings. I, I don't know what it is. And uh, you know, I think like most of us, when we were younger, we were just much better gamers because your reflexes are faster and you have no life, right? Your <laughs> life is school. And then, you know, stuff to do in between school and bed. Uh, uh, you could pretty much get away with playing games for hours and hours and hours every day. Uh, I wish I could do that now, but I can't. So I would, you know, I would just be practicing that same level on Sonic day in there. And I got to a point 
where it's kind of muscle memory. And I found every ring on, on that course. And there was something like 142 rings, I think. And I managed to get every single one of them. And, uh, you know, unless something catastrophic happened, I would do it fairly easily without dying. So uh, a couple of weeks before the show aired, um, when I was well into practice, you know, the researchers called me and said, you know, how are you doing? Are you getting those 120 rings? Are you going to be good for, for the filming day? And I was like... I, I can get 142. I can do all 142, and that was really that was really it. And it, it, it was actually it, I was actually shocked when uh, when I turned up for filming on that day, and and Dominic interviews me, and they said, okay, so yeah, we heard that you asked for it to be changed to 142 rings, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was honestly true. As 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 they were interviewed, you can watch it on YouTube, guys. Go back and watch it on, on YouTube. Um, it was at that point. I had not been told I was doing 142 rings, but I got 142 rings, and uh, and I got the golden joystick. Um, in fact, I didn't. I didn't. There's a little bit of video game history for you. My entire career was almost destroyed in under three seconds of, of my appearance on Games Master. Um, so I'll let you in a little secret. I could probably get in trouble for telling you this, but uh, when we shot it, in order to get those 142 rings in the allotted time, I think I had to start. You had to start with like a Sonic jump you had to do like your little spinball thing and then jump and um and i fluffed it i died i died literally within within three seconds i died within three seconds and and that was it uh, that was game over and you know i got up and uh was ready to film me walking back to the to the pulpit but it was just tremendously bad television so they gave it a few seconds and then you you just heard the voice from uh from the gallery as they call which is where all the director sits and stuff and says you know I think we can probably try try that one again and see uh, see if he can do a little bit better. <laughs> and uh, they gave me a second try. They gave me a do-over. Uh, it's lucky that I died in the first few seconds. I think if I had died like a minute and a half in, then that would have been that, and I would have gone home, and they may never have called me back. But uh, But because I died in the first couple of seconds, they gave me another shot, did it, won the golden joystick and uh, and then they called me back the following year so sky tv which was a uh an emerging force and everyone that bought sky at that point you you'd buy sky for what for wrestling or for simpsons mm. there was not much yeah. <laughs> there was not much else and that's that, that's all in itself all right and uh you bought sky for simpsons and wrestling and uh and they they kind of it was the very early days of Sky where they were working out what they wanted to do and what they wanted to be, and they, they, they were um, dipping their toe into original programming, trying to, uh, to to sort of shake off the stigma of it just being sort of U.S. Uh, reruns and stuff. Um, and they wanted to do some original programming, but they just had no money. They had absolutely very, very low budgets. Um, but they saw what was going on with uh, with Games Master, and they wanted some of that for themselves. So Sky contacted Hewland International to see if uh, if they'd be interested in uh, trying to repeat the formula and doing a spin-off for them on uh, on Sky, and ideally give them something they could strip across five nights a week. So they wanted something Monday to Friday uh, at sort of tea time slot, six thirty in the in the evening, and uh, had to be cheap to film, had to be uh, cheap to make, and. Uh, and Hewland rose to the channel, so they uh, to the challenge. So they did a spin-off, and uh, the show was called Game Zone. And they went into production on Game Zone. And uh, I remember seeing uh, logos for Game Zone and uh, an early concepts of, of how that show would look. And then they uh, then there was a magazine at the time. Again, magazines were big, and there was a magazine called Game Zone. 
Uh, so right at the last minute, I think they were scared of legal action, so they uh, they changed the name to Games World. So they, they, they called me after remembering my performance on, uh, on Channel 4, and they called me back and they brought me in to see would I be interested in... Uh, in repeating that role, they were looking for good gamers who could hold their own in front of a camera, which was easier said than done, certainly back then. Mm. So um, I was a pro gamer before there was a pro gamer, right? I think <laughs> I think they were the early pro gamers, um, and they wanted people that could play games and be house champions. And it was the, the idea was that it was going to be a take on uh, on gladiators, right? So. Uh, they were going to call them videators. They needed house champions. And, uh, and their main thread of the show was going to be something called uh, the Eliminator and then Beat the Elite. And that's, you know, kids playing other kids against against themselves on a Monday and a Wednesday. And then they'd, they'd organize a tournament. And the winner of uh, the Monday show goes on to face the winner of the Wednesday show. And the winner of the Wednesday show goes on to face the house champions, the videators. How did the concept of uh, Big Boy Barry come around then? So that's interesting. So they had a, uh, they had, you know, obviously a team of people, um, you know, working on the show and, and different concepts. And uh, they actually had some, some very big names. They had uh, a guy who's now a very famous producer who's gone on to produce Big Brother, a guy called Philip Edgar Jones, who's very, very well known in TV circles. And he was working on the show at the time. Uh, they had a guy called Steve Merritt, who uh, also went on to do stuff on Games Master. So they had, they had some talented people. I don't think uh, any of the videators, I wouldn't want to give any one person credit for coming up with uh, with, with, with the characters. Uh, but they did also have one researcher who was pretty good at comedy um, and whose job was to sort of work on different characters and work on different personas for these people to fill. And that guy was a guy called David Williams. And, uh, and, and there we go. So he was a pretty good comedian and he was working as a researcher. So I met David, um, during season one where he was working as a researcher and we kind of worked on this character together on, on what this character was going to be and how he was going to act and, uh, and give some sort of, yeah, very basic gimmicks and stuff. And it was all, it was all pretty sort of two-dimensional for, for that first series, which it had to be, really, because you've just got to come on and make an instant impact, and you've only got a couple of minutes screen time uh, before you play games and then sort of, sort of go off again. And that first series was all very basic, very broad characters. So you had, you know, a ninja, you had a, a gaming grandma, you had a, the executioner, you had a guy dressed as Jesus called the Gaming Messiah, and uh, and then you had Big Boy Barry. So uh, so originally it was going to be a more kind of Harry Enfield, loads of money character. He was going to be much more obnoxious and much more of a bully. Um, but we kind of just sort of loosened it a little bit and we made him more of a, a fan favorite, almost by accident. And uh, and there we go. But you know, David and I worked on some simple catchphrases: "The big is best," and and all that kind of good stuff. And that's how Big Boy Barry was born. Well, you also had the um, gaming goddess as well, which was a you did, yeah, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So so uh, Man of Big Cells, Pete Parler had uh, had Jet Diane Udell from uh, from the Gladiators um, playing the uh, the game's mistress. Yeah, so she was in series two as well. So, uh, so you you know you'd have you'd, you'd have this bad computer generated character, Madame Pixel. She she she'd serve to sort of do the links, and then you know she'd cut to David doing his his comedy characters, giving out tips and cheats. Then you'd have the game's mistress uh, dressed in sort of 
very risque leather costumes giving out tips and chips in, in a kind of boudoir as well in a boudoir <laughs> I know it's like how did how did we get away with it compare that to oh. Patrick Moore <laughs> I know well go figure yeah I always like to think that uh, Games Master was uh, Games Master was for the mainstream that's where all the money was you know they had the best guests they had the footballers and Vic Reeves and Liam Gallagher or whatever they had all the best guests and they had all the money and they had all the ratings but Games World was where the cool kids would, would, would kind of hang out that's where the real geeks were the real gamers would always prefer Games World I always thought that Bob Mills was an interesting choice for the host of the show I mean yeah. it was a bit of a bizarre fit you know to look at it on paper but it did work didn't it what was he much of a gamer and how did he kind of get on with him shouldn't have shouldn't have worked I don't think it shouldn't have worked it was do you know the Bob Mills thing is a very interesting is a very interesting point I've never actually gotten to the bottom of, of whose decision it was to bring him in and why um, because you're right on paper it really shouldn't have worked and I think it's one of those nice cases of sort of casting against type uh, no not a game at all he knew absolutely nothing about games don't think he liked them don't think he cared for them and I think that, that kind of showed on, on screen and he was sort of that, that anti-host and uh, that sort of, you know, that anti-games loving host, and and it just worked because he had the right, he had the right brand of sarcasm that wasn't sort of, wasn't too mean, wasn't too nasty to the kids, um, that just kind of worked. And in fact, sometimes he would, sometimes he would go overboard. Sometimes you'd have kids just burst out into tears when uh, when Bob would or, or one of us would uh, would lay into them, but they were playing really badly, they were losing all their games. Sometimes they would, they would just burst into tears. And you'd have to cut and go and cheer him up, and Bob would really apologise to them and uh, and cheer him up, and then start again. So sometimes it got a tiny bit out of hand, but but not not generally. He was really the nicest of nice guys, lovely guy. Bob never had a problem with him. Always worked well. He kind of kept himself to himself. The the, the sort of the, the 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 voice for the gamers would always be in the form of the commentator or the co-host. So uh, they switched between Tim Boone, who was an editor of, uh, I think, CMVG magazine back in the time, and then they'd have Jeremy Daudry, and then they'd have uh, Dave the Games, Animal Perry, uh, do commentary. And it was always the sort of commentator role who would know about the games and be that voice of the gamer. And Bob would, you know, just play the innocent, and quite rightly so. And uh, and there you go. But I got on very well with him. Um, I think, you know, he he appreciated working with me because I think it could be quite hard for him because, you know, he's the host and he he usually sort of nailed every take first time. And then certainly the first series, the first series, most of the videators were an absolute disaster because they, they casted them wrong. They just didn't know what they were looking for. So, you know, they first series, they went with a lot of ga- uh, with a lot of sort of actors, people that were, were very good on camera that they hoped they could train up to play games well and they couldn't. It was pretty disastrous. So, uh, you know, you had a mix between those guys and then they'd, they'd have some very good gamers who were just terrible in front of a camera. So Bob would always like working with the videators who could deliver a, a couple of lines without fluffing it and having to, to do take after take after take. So uh, him and I usually got on pretty well because we'd never usually need to do more than one one or two takes. Well, Dave Perry, as you mentioned, he was uh, from Games Master and yeah. he was also a, a, a big editor of magazines and stuff back then. I remember he was very involved in the magazine world yeah. I spoke to him today you know isn't that bizarre oh, I was speaking the... to him on Facebook today yeah he's that's... kind of made a bit of a comeback recently hasn't he Dave 
He has. Yeah. He has. He's dipping his toe back into gaming. I hope he doesn't mind me, me, me saying that. But No, uh, we, we uh, did one of the yeah. first interviews with him for a long time. We found him in a tattoo shop. Yeah, <laughs> right, two yeah. years ago. <laughs> he's, got, he's got a tattoo parlour now, right? In Brighton or something, or Bournemouth. Nice guy. I have, I've always gone on well with Dave. I've never had an issue with Dave. He's always been a nice guy and uh, respected his work. Yeah. Well, um, he, he was an editor of Games World magazine as well. And yes. I understand that was with Paragon, which was a different... Paragon Publishing, yeah. yeah. Now, we went down. I do remember, actually, it's very funny. We spent a whole day. So, by year two, which is, I think, when the Games Master magazine launched, that's when the brand was really growing. And so, year two is when they gave me my own show. So, Madam Pixel, they axed Madam Pixel's Pete Parlour, and they, they gave Tuesday night to, to me um, to do a, a sort of sitcom format. So, it was Barry's Joypad. And that was uh, me as Big Boy Barry. That was David Williams playing my sidekick Leslie, and multiple other characters. And uh, that's really when things started to take off. That was so much fun. But every week we would do a feature, you know, and they they spent money on it. So they, you know, I fly out to America to do uh, to do E3 or CES or whatever it was at the time, or I'd, um, <clears throat> you know, we'd, we'd we'd go down and look at you know big new games being made or you know the 3DO being launched or. or whatever it might be and uh, I remember we did a feature at Paragon Publishing at Games World the magazine seeing what it's like to put a magazine together oh. and we spent all day down there and it was really good we interviewed lots of guys and uh, the feature turned out fantastically well about an hour before the show aired this would happen a lot by the way you talk about getting stuff passed on Sky they did have a sensor and sometimes that sensor would only get to see the show like 30 minutes or an hour before it was due to air this is the truth. I have no idea how that happened. But, you know, the show was on such tight schedule that sometimes they only got to see it like the, the, an hour or so before it went to air. And very often, some of the stuff that we were doing or nine times out of ten that David Williams was doing and trying to get away with, you know, the censor would just say, no, absolutely not. You can't go out like that. And we're like, well, the show's airing in an hour. <laughs> what do you want to do? So they would have to, they would really, honestly, they would have to make cuts up to the very last second uh, to get stuff past the censor. Wow. And, uh, and, and that was one, one such case. The, the, uh, the whole feature that we did at Paragon Publishing had to be cut. Sky would not let it go because um, that it wasn't impartial enough and they felt the feature was too much of an advert for, <laughs> for the own brand of the magazine, which in hindsight it probably was. Um, but it's curious. And so they had to... They had to, at the last minute, they cut out that, the entire feature. And I think that, I can't remember what they did. I think they either reused the feature from last week's, which was just a show, which was just bizarre, or, uh, or, or cut it out entirely. But, uh, but it never aired. Well, speaking of it in a moment on Games World that we may have not seen in its entirety on TV, mm. I heard about a rather uh, awkward trip to Sega World that you had, um, where you where were, you you were, you were rather on. ill, apparently. <laughs> Come on! What was the story there then? Well, how do you know the story? I want to know where you got the story from. I I may have heard it somewhere. I couldn't possibly reveal myself. Ah, that's amazing. You have done your own work. Oh, there'd be all kinds of adventures making the features at Games Games World. It was was fun. It was 26 episodes a year, so we'd have to find 26 vaguely interesting features to go down and shoot. So... uh, (laughs) The uh, the day you're talking about was not a fun day. So we went down to um, 
I think we were scraping the barrel a little bit actually for ideas, but we went down to Sega World. Again, back in the 90s, arcades were still a thing, right? The uh, Trocadero. The, yeah, the Trocadero. You remember that? Yeah. That was still a thing, right? We did features down at the Trocadero, no doubt, when new arcades would come in, right? So I think we, would, we were the first people in the world to show uh, Street Fighter, Super Street Fighter 4 when they had new characters come on there. And we went down to the first arcade in the, in the UK, which I think was the Trocadero, that had the machine, and we did a feature there, you know? That was massive then, because nobody had damn well seen the game moving. Cause no YouTube, no internet. So these were the sorts of things we would do, and that would bring us big, big ratings. So we went down to, uh, to Sega World, which was in Bournemouth, that had just got a revolutionary new arcade machine called the, uh, the G-Lock 360, now, you guys have got to go and do a Google of the G-Log 360 because it's one of these... Was uh, it that gyroscope thing? Spins around. I yeah. think I remember seeing it. God. <laughs> yeah, it's the, big, it's the big gyroscope thing. So you'd sit in it and, uh, and, and the game was, was basically Afterburner, right? It was called G-Log, but it wasn't. It was really... It was Afterburner. It was a progression of Afterburner. Same sort of game. Uh, and, uh, you know, you'd, you'd be playing a plane and you've got to start shooting things. But the big novelty is that you're in this gyroscope. So... You know, it was more of a fairground attraction than anything else, and it would spin you upside down and left and right, and you'd move the joystick, and, uh, and wherever you'd go, you'd, you'd just start, uh, you know, it would just start going completely nuts. And uh, great fun, but the day we went down there, I had, I had, like, I had flu, and I don't, it wasn't man flu, it was flu. I was feeling bad. Um, and it was like a two-hour journey from, from where I was living at the time down to Bournemouth, and I remember I was falling asleep in the cab, and I just felt terrible. But, um, you know, I was a pro. The show had to go on. I didn't want to let anybody down, and I wanted to keep uh, keep the show on the road. But uh, <laughs> throughout the day, I was shivering. And, uh, you know, makeup was working hard because I was white, and I was sweating, and I was just, I was just feeling terrible. And we were shooting this whole feature down at um, at Sega World, and they had all these different arcades. And then the, the last feature, the, the last part that we were going to film of the day was was the G-Lock. And they were like, you know, Barry, you've got to you've got to get in it, and you've got to try it out because that's that's what the whole feature is leading up to. And I'm like, guys, I'm going to just hell. I just feel <laughs> I, just, I feel so. Too. Please don't make me. Please don't make me. And they were like, you've you've got to do it. You've got to do it. But look, we'll get you in. We'll set up the camera and the lights before you get in and then we'll get in we'll shoot you for like a minute and a half we'll just do some very light movements you don't have to go upside down in the damn thing and then we'll get you out and you can go home and I'm like do you promise like, yeah I promise no problem so um, you know the costume that I was wearing is you know so I'm on there with all the fake gold rings and the fake Rolex and they had me in like a fur jacket like a big pimp jacket and it was just it was crazy so we, we, we sat in this thing and I said, you know, please, guys, just just go gentle, and let's let's only have like a a minute of shooting. And and the the machine started, and the first thing it does is it orientates itself upside down, so it just goes upside down. <laughs> I had no idea it was going to go upside down, so it flings me upside down. At that point, my fur jacket that I'm wearing tips over and 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 interrupts the sensor that the machine has got. So the machine has got these sensors that if, if anything leaves the cabin, it automatically switches down because it doesn't want to chop your hand off or, or whatever. And uh, and it just shuts down and sirens start and then uh, it asks the technician. So the coat breaks the sensor, goes outside, I'm hanging upside down, the sirens go off and I'm, I'm like, I'm just about to be sick. And 
the machine was only just installed. So all of the staff had no idea how to reset the machine and orientate the machine. So if you remember the, the scene at the beginning of like Robocop, remember when Ed 209 goes wrong and starts <laughs> shooting everybody and they got all the scientists just trying to work on the damn thing to try to shut it down? Well, that was me. And I was hanging upside down for like, for like 18 minutes while they were trying to reset this damn thing. And I just turned white and I'm like, yeah, I could just feel the, the vomit rising up in my throat. And I was, I managed to keep it together bastard production crew they were just in hysterics they were filming the whole thing for the christmas reel this is for the christmas party and uh that was a terrible terrible day for me have you been on the g-lock 360 since never never that literally brings me out in a cold sweat just thinking about it it's just like nope nope done with that one and done i'm done with that i was just thinking the other day about what you know an amazing decade the 90s was for gaming, really. I mean, you know, we started in 1990, the Mega Drive had just come out. By the end Crazy. of the decade, the PS2 was about to come out, you know, that was a massive change. In the years that Games World War on Air, you covered such, you know, that really important, pivotal change in gaming. What were some, like, the most impressive memories you've got then, or most amazing things you saw? Well, you know, and just trying to figure out where it was going, you know, and you're absolutely right, you're absolutely right. The first sort of, uh, the first year of working on that show was kind of, you know, Mega Drive was, was still the king. Mega Drive and Super Nintendo were the king. And then, you know, I loved being in that environment. I'd love going in to film the show every day. When, certainly when you're doing the tournament stuff, because they had a Neo Geo, right? So you're playing on a Neo Geo, and uh, and that would feature in a lot of the matches. Now, no normal kid had a Neo Geo, because the games were like 200 quid a piece. But, you know, that was absolutely amazing. And, you know, they'd, they'd give away an arcade machine at the end of every season to, to the grand winner. So... That was incredible as well. So, um, yeah, it was, an, it was an amazing time. And then you, then it was strange, actually. And I think this is, this is perhaps part of the reason why the show, why the show did end when it ended, because you, you immediately went into what I call the wilderness years, where the industry didn't quite know how it was going to turn out, how it was going to orient, orientate itself. So you're talking about the era of the CDI and the 3DO, um, you know, all precursors to the PlayStation. So you had that sort of weird one or two years where actually towards the end of filming, the Mega Drive and the Snares were getting a little stale uh, and they were beginning to run out of steam. Um, and then you had like, you know, full, uh, full motion video movies, you know, Night Trap, Sewer Shark, uh, Ground Zero Texas. I remember doing features on all of those. We'd go out to the States and meet the guys putting that together. And, uh, and, you know, there was a while where everyone thought that was going to be the future. And I think from, from, from a gamer perspective, not really. But you had all these emerging technologies, VR as well. So we'd go down to the Trocadero and we'd shoot the, the VR experiences, which they are laughably crude. But back, back then, I mean, they, they made you feel as sick as hell because the frame rate was so terrible. But back then, it was, it was all kind of revolutionary. So you had all this new technology starting to come up um, that, was, that was fascinating to watch. Uh, and then the Saturn launching, and uh, you know, I remember we we were we were the first TV show I think to cover the uh, the, the, the PlayStation One mm-hmm. when that launched, and uh, and Ridge Racer and Toshinden and some of those games. That was right at the end of of our run as we were going into '95. Uh, we were we were covering the Japanese import of those machines, and uh, it's 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 kind of a shame that you feel that if. Uh, the show had ran another couple of years. I think the popularity would have would have would have gone many many times to even where it was at the height of its uh, height of its run, as the gaming industry started to find its feet again. 
Well, you decided to stay in the gaming industry and kind of created your own PR company and managed to get global uh, and communications director for Mad Cats. The, oh, um... You're very sweet. Thank you very much. Yes, no, I did. I, uh, I stayed in the industry. I stayed in the industry. So, uh, so when Games World ended, um, I, I did TV. I, I did a fair bit more of TV, actually. So Games World ended, I think, in 94. I, um, I did uh, a live-action uh, video game show, sorry, a live video game show for Children's ITV that was produced by Scottish TV called Tiggs. Oh, with the wonderful Gail Porter. With the wonderful Gail yeah. Porter. Well done, well done. So that was the totally an- interactive game show, Tiggs. So that ran a year. That was good fun. Uh, and then I kind of went back to Sky, and then and Hewland actually launched something called the Computer Channel. So they got a new contract from Sky to do a two-hour segment every day. So it wasn't really a channel; it was two hours a day, but uh, it qualified as a channel. They called it the Computer Channel, and uh, it was—it it never really knew what it wanted to be. I don't think it was—it was trying to be family-orientated and educational and. Uh, you know, but they they did have a gaming strand as well. So I presented the gaming strand. I did that with Donna Air and uh, with various different co-hosts um, for a couple of years, and that ran Monday to Friday again on 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 Sky. Then they brought Games World back very briefly uh, in like an Aztec setting, and they they made it a morning show, uh, and that was around the year 2000. Uh, Andy Collins, um, who's on BBC Three Counties Radio now. He's a really good guy, one of the best warm-up men in the business, in fact. Um, he was presented that, that year. He took over from Bob Mills, uh, and I took over the commentary position for that for that year. So, uh, so Gamesville did come back briefly. That was good fun. And then, you know, I think as, uh, as the TV stuff started to become more and more uh, unreliable, I made a, a personal decision in my career. Like, what was I going to focus on? Was I going to focus on, on more of the TV side of things, knowing that the opportunities for gaming TV was starting to become far, uh, further and fewer, uh, for, uh, farther and fewer between, as it were, mm. uh, or do I go and, uh, and concentrate on, on the actual games? And I still love the games, so, uh, so I decided to, uh, to segue into gaming PR, and that's where I am today. Well, speaking of you personally, I mean, we haven't seen the last of Big Boy Barry because I know at Play Expo in the last couple of years, um, we've we've seen you there. So, I mean, are there any plans to do more as Big Boy Barry then or maybe even like a, a BTV Kickstarter? No, Dave- I would, I, truly, I would love it. You know, truly, I would love it. Um, there's, over the years, there's been, you know, I've talked to so many different people about different pilots uh, for video game shows um, with, with the mainstream terrestrial TV guys, with smaller guys. And, uh, you know, one producer in particular, who's actually a very big producer working today, just a big fan of Games World back then, and, uh, and had a whole pilot and had a whole idea of a segment for Big Boy Barry, uh, where he was going to have Big Boy Barry working uh, down on his lap, working in the kebab shop, um, <laughs> cutting out kebabs and giving out tips and, and cheats to, uh, to, to, to different customers every week. And uh, <clears throat> that was kind of fun as well. So there have been so many different ideas uh, over the years. I'm the first one there. I'm I'm there. Sign me up. Anyone uh, wants to talk to me about bringing Big Boy back? Of course, absolutely. I, I still keep my uh, still keep my finger in the TV side of things. Um, PR is my day job in in the gaming industry, and uh, Little Big PR, which is my uh, my agency that I run with my supremely talented business partner, Mr. Gareth Williams. Um, that keeps us that keeps us incredibly busy. That's uh, that's doing well. We're pleased to say, and uh, takes up all of my time really. But uh, presenting and the big boy, um, 
you know, got me in the industry, and I'll never forget that, and I'll never turn turn my back on it. And uh, I, I kind of think that Big Boy Barry and Alex Berry are, are sort of uh, are sort of the same person. And I don't shy away from it. My, I have a personalised number plate, which is BBB. <laughs> I have BBB monogrammed on all my luggage. I don't shy away. But I embrace it. I, I love it, and I never forget. Um, that Big Boy Barry and uh, you know got me into the industry and it's an industry that I love. So, yeah, a play expo. I've still got the costume and it still fits, which is just insane. And uh, and I just up and uh, and did a panel, and uh, I'm still speaking to people today about bringing the Big Boy back. So I'd love to. I keep talking about doing a YouTube video. I think that's 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 probably the natural fit for it these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is bringing Big Boy back via YouTube. Um, I'm just too uh, just too busy and lazy to figure out how to how to how to get that how to get that sort of kick started. I, every year I say this is going to be the year I'll do it, but uh, maybe I'll get round to it in 2018. Well, obviously we've got Play Expo coming up in February, so hopefully we we'll, we'll see you there, Alex. We will be down there. The big boy will be down there. The round sound, lovable mound. The gamely gaming guru. The tubby tight. The tea time telly. The poor buccaneer of broadcasting. The portly prince of prime time. The <laughs> the madman mountain. The Red Hot Tip Top Non-Stop One-Stop Shop Roller Coaster Rider Fun will be there in February. And uh, looking forward to seeing you guys there. Oh, he's still got it. Still got it. <laughs> Never going to lose it. Alex, better believe it. Barry, we appreciate you joining us this week. It's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you so much for coming I've had up. so much Thanks fun. So much. Hope you found it a little bit interesting, guys. And, uh, well, I look forward to doing it again soon.